Welcome back all to the fourth and final episode of this Asset Owner Transformation series. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have Jeff, Ryan, Christine and Mark here to walk us through in this episode the real practical details of how all of the considerations that we've talked about previously are really turning into an, a project realization agenda. So we've had some fascinating conversations if you think over the last three discussions around the whole questions of spreadsheets, the limitations and thresholds associated with those, the pressures that are driving people from ESG all the way through to operational risk. We've talked about last week the question of talent and roles and responsibilities as people have looked at how they're prioritizing and managing their projects and how they're trying to manage the whole gamut of change pressures all the way through from ESG and kind of mandate compliance all the way through to operational efficiency and asset servicing, for example, who's on the hook for that and how people are managing those challenges in the world of finite resources. So today, really, we aim to kind of get onto the nuts and bolts view and look at how the rubber's hitting the road in terms of projects, people, and really with the aim of making sure that everyone comes away from this with a really nice, clean view of how those big headaches that everyone's got can turn and transform into a transformation agenda. So to kick us off, one of the key points from the research was that uh, there is no no absence of project work going on amongst asset owners. 40% of asset owners have got work going on this year and next year in terms of transformation of some description. And top of the list, not surprisingly, is removing Excel. 66% of the industry is prioritizing EUC and Excel or spreadsheet removal as basically as, as the kind of main channel, main objective, but then with an awful lot of different things hovering in the kind of 50 to 60% range. The one key theme, though, that does stand out across all of those is the importance of data. Six of the top 10 projects that people are working on are data-driven more than infrastructure. And so that, you know, that the all of the talk, if you like, around data being the new oil seems to be materializing. So maybe, Jeff, kick us off. I mean, how does that resonate with you in terms of, first of all, what projects you're seeing in terms of operational agenda? And then equally, what the themes are that are driving those? Sure. So... I guess the first observation I would make is that um, a lot of the projects that we're seeing, would I would characterise as people reaching out to professionalise their infrastructure across the value chain. And I would, I would say the behaviour that we're seeing where it is fairly fragmented. So we're not seeing everyone doing the same thing. So you've got a lot of organisations focused on data, which is clearly a, an important part of the operating model. But the way that we see operating models is the ability to link the flow of data through an organisation with the functions that you undertake both internally and across the supply chain, and then the end-to-end -end processes that link them together, the control framework that allows you to manage it, and importantly, the people skills that are required to operate a more automated world. And I think what we're seeing is that a lot of organisations are tackling that picture from different points sometimes at the data layer, in fact, most most often at the at the data layer. But I think we're also now seeing organisations starting to think about, hang on, I, I need to know not just the data flows, but I need to know what systems are going to be used by whom and where to actually make that all join up. And it's interesting when you look at the some of the data, the highest order areas that um, asset owners sort of said they need to change is their structure and their structure and this and system replacement. And I think that's a 
that's an example of reaching for people reaching for the tools that they understand. And I think what we'll identify is that there's some uh, skills and gaps that can be brought into play to to join up some of those uh, initiatives to be a little bit more holistic. Yeah, that that theme of of, of professionalising the infrastructure really resonates. I mean, I mean, Ryan, what are you seeing in terms of you know how how if 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 that's the big kind of theme that we're all starting to grow up? How do you find that's actually that's showing up amongst the clients that you're seeing? There have been a few instances uh, for our clients where, you know, essentially they're implementing technologies at the data aggregation level as they look at, you know, getting rid of Excel because largely they're using Excel for some form of analytics, performance reporting sort of items. And if they manage to get the underlying data from a master custodian or so on, they're plugging it into these data aggregators. Now, again, that is with a certain tier of clients. I think, you know, the larger asset owners, as we've discussed, have really sort of foundational data infrastructure that they're, you know, updating and utilizing. So, you know, we mentioned it before, I think it's largely dependent on where an asset owner is in their own journey. But some of the things we're seeing with our clients is at the data aggregation level. Yeah, no, thanks. And and so absolutely. So data, the data is the kind of the backbone. Christine, do you see this challenge to um, Jess' point about kind of, if I understand right, you know, you've got the kind of, first of all, you've got the kind of the, the objectives definition, if you like, and then you look, you're looking at the tools that are best placed for that to help meet the different objectives. Do you find that that's the kind of core driver of this diversity of projects that's going on around, around the organization? Yeah, I, I do think it is. As Jeff said, you know, Firms are looking to professionalize what they're doing. They have a duty to their their plans with regards to being able to get information back to them appropriately. There's a level of transparency that's required, as we've talked about ESG and others, but just general transparency with regards to the investment strategies, the information flowing to the plan, and also making sure that the, you know, that everything that they're doing has some level of, of oversight and governance to it, uh, which is critical. And the only way to do that is really to put tools in place to be able to get that information, be able to be able to share that information. So I, I think there's a, you know, it's it's both regulatory pressure as well as just general pressure in the marketplace with regards to change. And as we've said, data is obviously, I think you said it's the new oil, but the reality is that it is the information, that's the information that people are looking for, comes from that data. So I don't think that's new. I think what's new is how you how you source it, how the data is being managed, how the information is being managed. As I've said in, you know, recently, whoever thought about having a data scientist, right? You know, that terminology, those terms are all net new for folks. So it's really it's turning it into less of an art and more of a science to be honest. And, you know, I think historically it was more art form than anything. And that's the professionalism of it, right? So now you're starting to take it much more seriously instead of it being somebody's desktop spreadsheet on the side. It's now something that's really core to the business, core to them as a, as a firm. And, you know, as, as we've seen with some of the very large funds, you know, the larger funds in terms of, you know, both in, in Canada, the U.S., and Australia, and I know we've talked about South Africa as well, they've had to grow their business through very interesting asset classes, through growth in terms of global exposure. You know, all of these, all of these plans, 
have desks around the world trading. So how do you pull it all together? How do you how do you bring that information together and make it available? And that's really that's really the critical point as far as we're seeing change. I hope that. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, and, and you touched on. I mean, the, what the fantastic thing about having Mark here is is you know, you, to your point, you, if you think about the scale of organizations we've talked a lot about the mega funds and and the incredible sophistication that they're building in and kind of this 22nd century almost you know 30 year lens on everything mark from your perspective i mean obviously you're very exposed not only to african funds but also to many others all across the size spectrum does this kind of professionalization drawing everything together around a core infrastructure that has oversight and governance do those themes resonate or do you think are there other things kind of possibly more short term happening at, at smaller ends of the AUM spectrum no i think i think barney all that has been said so far is is equally relevant to let's say south africa as as a starting point but i guess one of the things which is important is it depends obviously where the evolution of, of funds are, you know, and your question was behind your question, I believe, is that in South Africa, you've got um, a number of large funds, let's say the top 20 or so funds are of significant scale. And you've also got included within that a number of umbrella funds because there's been significant consolidation of, of smaller funds into, into umbrellas. And that's a function of, of lack of scale. It's a function of what's the most cost-efficient way of running the plans, et cetera. But notwithstanding that, the issues that have been raised are, are equally relevant in South Africa. The one thing I would say is that there's certain approaches that are not as well developed in South Africa as they are in other markets. So relative to the research, um, master custody, for example, master custody is not in its infancy as such, I would say it's in its teenage years, in that there's funds that utilize master custodians, but it's relative to Australia, Canada, for example, you know, the take-up is still relatively modest. So when it comes to issues like uh, data management, when it comes to ESG reporting, when it comes to those other subjects, obviously the appointment of a master custodian for certain funds would be quite a significant move forward, you know, based on where that fund is on the curve. So I think that the factors here are all relevant to scale and where the, the market is in terms of its own development. The final thing I would say is that what is evident and it doesn't just apply to pension plans. I think it applies to asset owners more broadly, is that there's more instances of organizations wanting to review their current operating model, wanting to benchmark that operating model relative to a broader peer group, and then wanting recommendations on how do they bring efficiencies into the operating model that are sustainable for, say, the next 10 years. So this will be functional related, it'll be cost related, it'll be international benchmark related. And there's definitely more evidence of funds wanting to do that so that they're taking the right decisions kind of holistically around how they move their operating model forward for, for that next 10-year duration. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And so, the, so the, the kind of consistent theme coming through is that we're professionalizing, to your point, with a view to a kind of 10 plus year term. We're looking to use kind of basically put in place the right frameworks, oversight and governance, and then the tools that support that. 
One thing that just uh, I had a note from our last conversation, microservices. One of the things that, you know, obviously the massive tendency or the, the proven historical is, is you, you know, you'd lift and shift. You know, you, you put a, pull out a, a bunch of stuff and you put in a nice new system. What are we seeing? Are we, are we seeing the kind of the tendency in the 21st century more, more towards microservices and to be towards a much more factionalized operating model? Or are people still looking at big backbones and, and kind of big core infrastructures? I'm happy to comment on that. Barnaby. I, I think where I'd start is the, and the survey actually indicated this, that people are having trouble defining the challenge. And by that, I mean, scoping out an objective that says, this is what I'm going after in a way that gives you some hint about how you should go after it. So I think when you start talking about microservices and I would put anything from RPA to blockchain to the cloud to anything else into this bucket, these are just technologies. And I I say just not in a disparaging way, but in in a way that says there is no silver bullet, there's no magic wand, there's no one size fits all, there's no, you know, everything's got to be microservices or everything's got to be backbone or whatever. The criteria for what works is what's best for the members, for the end investors. And and that's got uh, probably about three characteristics when it comes to operational infrastructure. One is at what cost? What what is the unit cost that is not sucking return out of members' accounts? What is the risk profile associated with it operationally, you know, managing that money effectively right from the investment decision through the operational value chain? And then can I provide the services and transparency to the member and the other stakeholders like regulators and so on that have been mentioned? And if I go back to something Christine said before about um, reminding us about uh, data being the new oil, if you think about driving a car, are you really thinking about the oil because it's pretty smelly, horrible, sticky stuff? Or are you thinking about I am driving this car from A to B and I'm interested in the fuel economy? I'm interested in how quickly it accelerates and gets me there. I'm interested in how comfortable it is and so on. And I think one of the things that the industry has got to get its head around is that data is a very pervasive and interesting and important component, as oil is, to driving a car. But no one's thinking about the pipes and plumbing that gets the oil and the trucking of it and everything else when they're selecting a car or driving it. The operating model is the car. We get paid when we're running an asset business to drive the car efficiently and effectively and as far and and make it perform as well as we can. And I think we've got to put data in its right place, which is a key layer that needs to be attended to, but it's not an end game in in itself. And that's why when you mention microservices or any other technology, that they can be an important tool or choice or component. But I I really don't think we're in a situation where a belief system around this decade's technology is is the right way to think about designing the uh, you know, our outcomes when you, when you think about what we're trying to do at the end, end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and, and that, because I guess for me, one of the one of the things to your point is that ultimately we are now faced with more technologies than we've ever had in terms of optionality. That, you know, if you go back, you had mainframes, then you had just outsourced the whole, whole shooting match to somebody else. Whereas now you have everything from all of those options, but also many, many others. And I guess for me, to your point, I mean, you know, so that the menu is much longer in terms of options available, which one contributes to the, I think, challenges, as you say, around framing the right problem and the solution. So is this a data problem? Is it a a people problem? Is it a process system problem? But then also it has, I think, a, a pretty significant impact on who's around the table in terms of, you know, basically who we're turning to for help. 
So we're not just turning to the mainframe provider anymore. We're turning to a whole host of other people, to your point, I think, Jeff, that are going to help us to, to actually make that nice link between problem and solution and to help, as you said, you know, build the right car. Because there's an awful lot of people pushing different cars at the moment. So, you know, with that, I wanted to kind of touch on perhaps, Ryan, you know, the questions around the changing team. Mark has mentioned kind of the the increasing kind of maturity of master custody in certain parts of the world. But, you know, one of the things that stands out in the research is ultimately is that at the top end of the scale, there are new seats coming, at, at, you know, new seats at the table. You have software vendors, you have, you know, boutique consultancies, you have, you know, fintechs coming into the conversation at the expense of the old, old players. Are you finding that in the conversations that you're having? Yeah, absolutely. I think the research represents what we sort of see on the street with our clients because of the availability, as you were discussing, you know, of the the, the broader menu of items that clients, depending on where they are, again, in their journey, they're looking to different providers. And you know, these new tech providers, these fintechs are available everywhere. Now, the question ends up being, how well a client is able to assess the sort of utility of the new technologies. I, I love the analogy of the the car and the you know the gas because you know for us as an organization, just you know on a side note, I was speaking to some of our data folks and we spent seven, eight years just you know setting up the data infrastructure, cleaning it up before any you know, attempts at AI or intelligence or infrastructure. So if an organization understands where they are, how it's going to flow, how it gets pieced together, then they can make informed decisions about the sort of boutique providers they can select. If they don't, they, you know, can pick and, you know, somebody says, oh, yeah, we can do all these things and they put it into play. And I've had a few clients who have come because they come to us and they say, hey, you're a master custodian. We need all this data. And so we go through the you know exercise, get them the data points and like we need it tomorrow. And then we deliver it to them and said, actually, now you got to put it on hold because the provider that sold us that thing said, you know, we ran into some hiccups and now that's going to be delivered next year. Right. So I think it's always advisable for asset owners to seek expertise. You know, there are a lot of knowledgeable consultants out there that can really help map out where you are, where you want to go, and what the steps to get there look like. So that those decisions that they're making, as you said, to bring in those, you know, specialized providers can be fruitful for them. Yeah. How are you seeing this, Christine, in terms of actually the, you know, it, I mean, Ryan's point around you've got to, you know, these these relationships all have pluses and minuses in terms of, you know, risks and rewards. You know, you're seeing the projects kind of kicking off every day. You know, how are people managing that? First of all, who do I have at the table? And then second of all, how do I make sure I'm really, you know, managing these people properly? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And I agree with um, with Jeff and, and Ryan and what they're saying as well. I think that what we're seeing is that a number of the larger custody banks, we'll call them, are looking to try to solve a lot of challenges across the board. I wouldn't pick on any one of them in any way, shape, or form. But I think, you know, as Ryan said, sometimes that's only one source of the information, right? I mean, the reality is, Everybody's got their their box, and the box may get bigger and expand as you, as you go along. But the reality is, how do you piece it all together? So, you know, Jeff, you're talking about a car. Well, 
if your car is made up of a whole pile of components, you know, you've basically created a Mad Max car, right? So, so the, right. Uh, I mean, that's essentially what what's happening is is you know they're creating these environments where you're consolidating information across multiple organizations, multiple data points, and you know when you look whether you're small a small plan or a small asset owner or a large asset owner, the reality is that you have multiple asset classes. Not all the classes are going to be managed by a master custodian or they're being managed independently, which comes to be where you see some of these microservices put into place. So how do they, how do you then how do you then pull all those microservices together? And how do you then pull all of the information coming from from the larger partner that you have as well? Because in North America, for sure, and in Australia, obviously, these custodians play a big role, huge role. You know, whether it's it's just custody, whether it's other things, including accounting and, and other services. But the point there is how do you pull this all together and who do you rely on? So I think it's making sure, as Ryan said, having the right people at the table, making sure you're getting a roadmap put together, looking at your roadmap and understanding where you want to go as a business, and then being able to being able to determine also the timing of these things. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that shortly, but because some of these programs are are massive, they're multi-year transformational programs that require mm. a lot of specialization. And I think one of the things that firms are starting to recognize is that they don't do these kinds of transformations often. So when they do, they do need help. And so whether that's help from the service provider, that's help from the consultants, the help from uh, the vendors that they're dealing with, they do need the help because they don't do this every day. So that is something that's that's critical for them uh, because transformation is is hard on any organization. Yeah. So if, if I'm not stretching Jeff's analogy too far, we're really seeing the emergence of a car mechanic as opposed to an oil mechanic as a specialism within the organizations. And 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 I mean, in that context, at the different ends of the spectrum, who are we seeing asset owners wanting to be that car mechanic? Because I think there's, as far as I can tell, there's a bit of a change kind of going on. I mean, Mark, maybe first, just in terms of actually what you're seeing, you know, you're mentioning the emergence of master custody at, at the other end of the scale, potentially there's a phasing out of interest in master custody at the super end of the scale. How are you seeing that in terms of who the, the kind of the car mechanic is, if that's even a thing? I'm going to try and um, avoid extending Jeff's um, yeah, analogy probably much, gone as much far further as we because one, yeah. because I'll be into <laughs> pistons and any, everything else, you know. But look, I think I think the the, the key thing here is to, is that there's a plan, you know. And Christine made the point that whichever the jurisdiction is, often the operating model has been built over time, and in many instances, that operating model at the core is a legacy of system that that caters for X percent of the functional requirements of the fund. So, you know, I think there's a, if you combine that with arguably an unprecedented level of change, you know, through technology development, through asset class development, you know, more recently, the onset of digital assets and so forth, actually plans need to have a plan of their direction. And I agree with Christine, to execute against that plan is not something, this isn't a six-month hit. It's executing in a structured way. Now, the really positive thing about where we are in 2022 is that delivering against that plan 
can be made up of a variety of solutions within the underlying ecosystem. You know, so it's not not a case of one or two players doing everything. It's kind of determining which which components of this infrastructure are best best delivered from organizations who've got superior capabilities, superior technology, functional strength, and so forth. You know, and I think I think where the industry has evolved to is leading to funds actually identifying that they need subject matter experts inside. And they need to often pull them away from operational roles into transformation roles. And I think that people transformation is going to be ever more relevant, you know, over the coming years. Plus, supplementing that with uh, third-party help where they feel that's relevant. So I think that there's that dynamic. It's it, it's definitely a period of of change. But the the behemoth in, internal system, the behemoth kind of capability from a single provider. I'm not saying that that's not relevant for, you know, there's typically always going to be a core system, but the broader ecosystem, there's many options. And I think with the right plan, that ecosystem will be structured to kind of maximize the functional requirements the fund has, as well as uh, support the operating efficiency and to Jeff's point, the underlying cost of delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeff, one of the things that stands out in the research is that kind of this idea of moving away from the behemoth kind of not not just system, but the behemoth provider and, and anecdotally trying to put people a little bit back in their boxes. Are you seeing that in terms of a move away from letting somebody else own my operating model and this desire to effectively to have that control in-house? Yes. So in terms of the, the operating model, I, I don't think you, you're going to see a massive change in what I would call the provision of core services. And there's a in-source, outsource sort of conversation that sometimes is philosophical, sometimes, you know, cost-driven or, or whatever. I think where we talk about the new players getting involved, it's really where change is occurring. And I think it's fair to say that larger organisations are probably a little bit less responsive sometimes than smaller ones. That that can be a function of the size of the organisation. I don't think that's necessarily the driver, though. I think the reality is that the kind of change that's going on with asset owners at the moment is very sort of, I'll call it IP, as in intellectual property driven. So it's IP dense and you need specialists with skills. It often is unique to the investment strategy of the firm that actually influences the nuances of what they need operationally as well to to be able to support that. So I I think where you see in the survey, you know, a third of large asset managers now citing, you know, boutique consultancies and fintechs and and so on as, as partners, I think they're partners in the change process. They may have a role after the change process as well, but I think that's what these firms are reaching for. And I think the mid-tier firms and the smaller-tier firms are probably just later in that life cycle, either because they're taking a sensible decision to wait and see how that plays out, because I think some of those outcomes are, are uncertain, or because they're resource-constrained and they'll, they'll actually consume the new way of doing things once it's baked its way into the core services. So I would say it's a pretty normal kind of still fairly early in the cycle of this sort of uh, professionalisation. And uh, if I go back to something Ryan said before, which I think is is correct, you've sort of got this fragmentation now of people with solutions that they're putting forward and not all solutions are equal and not all solutions that take you forward are capable of taking you to an end game. 
And I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Ryan mentioned uh, data aggregators, very important function. And in fact, again, from the survey, it was probably seen as the best short-term win is to have uh, our interfaces to be able to collect and, and bring data into an organisation. And we see a lot of that being presented into as, as part of, well, we can assist you with investment decision-making as a consequence of bringing that data. That's a true statement. Until you say, as an institutional asset allocator, I now want to execute on that decision I've made. And they go, well, we don't do that. We, we just aggregate the data and present you with the stuff. So if I had an operating model guiding my selection of partners, I might say, well, hang on, in my operating model, I know that after I've gathered that data and brought it all together across the asset classes, internal and external managers of, of different classes and so on, I've got that picture, that's tremendous, but now I need to act on it. And now I'm going to have a different view about the right combination of providers that are going to help me with that outcome. And that's that's why I think we're very encouraged to hear the industry talking about operating models because once people discover and understand what that really means, it actually informs those choices and makes it much safer to run transformation programs and select partners and so on. Yeah, and it's it's a really interesting thought that I mean, you know, this this challenge of of, of you know these new you know new new seats at the table potentially bringing with them a lot of execution risk and challenges as much as they bring brilliant ideas and insights. How are firms actually managing to that? Because ultimately, to your point, you know, you obviously everyone brings in that one of the themes is that there's a strong kind of verticalization of specialism. So basically, people are coming in by asset class or people are being turned to by kind of as I said, an end-to-end piece. But, I mean, how are firms managing to the fact that, you know, some of these people have very short track records? They're not, you know, massive great banks that have been there for 20 years and that you know what you're going to get, whether you like it or not. How are people managing to kind of filter that and actually, in a kind of due diligence style, actually manage that? I don't know if anyone's got a view on that, actually. Sure, I'll I'll take a first hit at that, I guess. One of the things that we're seeing a lot more of uh, and, you know, we support this wholly as uh, proofs of concept. I mean, instead of just going in and assuming that whatever you're being told works, really testing it, putting it through its paces, putting it through putting it through the challenges in small buckets and really being able to see whether or not they can realize a win leveraging these tool sets. Because sometimes it's OK to walk away. Right. That happens, too. It's not a good fit for both organizations. Then it's it's not a good fit. Not everybody's going to have all the right pieces to the puzzle. And, you know, as Mark said, it's it's about putting a plan in place as well. So when you think about transformation, you have to assess what the transformation means to your firm. And then you have to make decisions about the timing of those, the sequencing, the amount of time we spend with our clients working through what the right sequencing is understanding where they want to get to and how quickly they want to get there, looking for, in some instances, tactical, and in other instances, you know, strategic, and finding the place for both. Because sometimes it takes longer to benefit from the strategic immediately. But in terms of going back to your initial question, I think people are test driving more and more. They're really trying out the application before they go. And with some of these smaller more nimble firms, right, that are operating in an agile environment, they're okay with that because it gives them a chance to, it gives them a chance to also reframe if need be, because the uh, the applications need to be, you know, the applications need to be adjusted. So it's, it's giving both an opportunity to test out, make sure it's a good fit. 
So that's, I see both Ryan and Jeff nodding their heads. Uh, so I'll, I'll pause there and see if I think you want to pipe in, Jeff. Yeah, you make a really important point. This business about the way that you go about you know, buying effectively and selecting, I think there is a massive mismatch in the market between legacy procurement processes that generally think about things in terms of RFPs and bake-offs and, and uh, you know, references and, and materials in the market that are later life cycle types of solutions versus direct inspection, which Christine described very nicely, where, where you need to do POCs, you need to inspect directly and form a view. Uh, the skill set that the organisation needs to have to be able to operate safely in that transformation world, if it is genuine transformation, not just sort of catching up, and that's what uh, Christine's described, you do need to think about POC and, and other uh, similar tools to be able to make informed decisions, not just uh, everybody else thinks so, because everybody else generally isn't doing it yet. I think one of the things which just kind of to echo in the same comments, you know, this this kind of dynamic around the people that are involved is obviously critical, you know, which is the, the previous comment I made was that, you know, if you we're seeing people being taken from operational roles into transformation roles. I think this is a very important aspect, you know, supplemented with other resources as appropriate, because one of the things with with the passage of time is that there are less and less people that actually understand the operating model from an end-to-end view. So, you know, people tend to specialize in an asset class. They tend to specialize in, in, in different components of the operating model, performance measurement, analytics, ESG, et cetera. But those resources that actually understand this from an end-to-end point of view are incredibly valuable, you know, even more than ever. So you need to kind of look at, okay, how do we ring fence those? How do we supplement those people? Because these things don't have to take years. It's more a case of having the right subject matter experts that are kind of analyzing where they are now and determining where they want to go to, getting approval for that. But obviously, if you've got the right talent that is doing that work and the right roadmap is developed, you save an enormous amount of time from a subsequent execution point of view. I think people get distracted by it's going to take forever, but it takes forever if you go into this repetitive cycle of actually not having the right people in the right roles doing the right things, you're not going to get the right outcome. You know, And I think in all of our careers, you see it happen time and time again. But when you're looking at the operating model holistically, I believe you've got to be very conscious on who are the team of people that are doing that and what's their profile? And what's the profile of the people executing against that? And that will kind of lead more logically to, to partners, the right vendor selection, et cetera. But the, the final comment is that what we need to bear in mind here is that one of the, the stark observations is that, that two-thirds of organizations are looking to replace Excel. And some are using it in, in a very broad way to consolidate portfolios and so forth. So you know, obviously, the starting point for this transformation is going to vary from organization to organization. It's going to vary based on internal, external management, all of that, you know. But it doesn't mean that the principles um, are different, you know, but the starting point is going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you piece all this together, you know, you've got two very, very different kind of realities playing out. You've got one, you know, Jeff, to your point about the buying cycle. I mean, one is basically organization wants to change, so they throw out an RFP into the market. 
buy in a system and then hope that the system's going to solve everything and spend 10 years kind of getting it some way there. And then the other, the way we're describing it really stands out for me is, is very strikingly different. You've got, first of all, Mark, to your point, building the people competency internally to be able to handle this kind of thing. And ultimately finding out what your operating model is, I think, in many cases, leveraging the kind of talent you're talking about. Then, Ryan, to your point, spending up to eight years, you know, cleaning up the data and doing your housekeeping to the point where you're actually ready to do something about it. And then you can get the funky guys in to do a POC. And at that point, you're then really able to uh, to do something meaningful in terms of executing change. So two very old world, new world kind of ways of doing things. I'm curious, though, to see, I mean, first of all, I suppose, is that a fair reflection of what we're seeing? But second of all, you know, the latency that that adds. Christine, you mentioned the whole tactical versus strategic. I mean, by the time we've done all of that, you've got to have a management that's pretty committed to fundamental, a plan, yes, but a plan that's going to take seven, 10 years. Are we seeing people comfortable with that? And particularly at different levels of AUM, are we seeing everyone comfortable with that? I would say no. I don't think everyone's comfortable with that. I mean, I think it requires a long-term commitment. And to Mark's point, there are people that are very valuable within the firm. How do you maintain them? How do you keep them engaged over a long period of time for that kind of change? I think you have to have incremental wins to be able to, to, to sustain that. That's the only way that can that can work. And seeing Mark's right, you know, there are very few people that understand end-to-end in a lot of these firms, whether they're small. The smaller ones, you'll see a little bit more of that, but the larger ones, absolutely, that becomes more more difficult because being able to see end to end all the time is very tough. So it is it is important if you look at a longer journey to make sure that you along the way, along the path, you know, I talked about sequencing that comes that comes to bear as well with the sequencing of these things and understanding how you can introduce wins to the teams, to the organization to the plan members as well, right? Because there's also a cost associated with these types of transformations. There's time, there's people, there's there's money, obviously, that, that comes into play. And you, you know, you have to be careful as well not to burn people out, right? Particularly if they're doing two things at once. And that's what it comes down to also making sure that you've got enough resources to be able to support these kinds of changes. It doesn't matter what it is, but you have to have the right amount of resources to do it. Or those are some of the risks that are associated with it. Mm. I know, Ryan, I think you were going to jump in. Yeah, I think, you know, what we see, you know, and, and we sort of talk about asset owners as, you know, these living, breathing things. But the truth of the matter is it comes down to people. You know, what we've found is the tolerance or the sort of stomach for how long a project can go can also largely depend on the tenure of the person making the decision. You know, if the person is two years away from retirement, they may not want to take it on. But we see, you know, as people move around organizations and, you know, individuals start new roles, you know, this whole idea of like my first hundred days, right? What are they going to do? How are they going to set their mark? Where are they going to draw the line in the sand? And then they can have these big, bold, ambitious ideas and 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 a vision and you know long term view. And it is quite people dependent, right? I think that's the way it operates. And when we either go into our clients or we see consultants come into client shops, I think that's a critical question to ask in order to frame the time horizon. Who are the people that are going to be around? 
because obviously I echo everything that the panel has said about how a loss of sort of broad knowledge and who was the complement that's going to take it. And just another quick point, in terms of de-risking the execution risk, what we're also finding is that individuals, as they move, they will pick technologies that are familiar. So they'll say, oh, I use this technology at this other place. You know, I know it sort of de-risks my adoption within the organization because I can bring in a few people who know it. It may not be the best solution, but it's familiar, right? And I think that's another way that people deal with that idea of de-risking what they implement and how long it takes to implement it. I think, Ryan, that's called career de-risking, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> We've been around long enough to know that exactly. But I think I think there is... Uh... Just kind of on that point, you know, there's the people dynamic from the most senior executive through to the to the people on the program, you know, that dynamic needs to be right, you know. And, you know, Ryan makes uh, the point, you know, I think we all know there's examples of big projects that need to be done, but they don't get done, you know, because they're just too big, you know. And, and actually often people don't want to make the decision to do them on their watch. You know, I mean, that's the reality. And you can sugarcoat it, but that's often the reality. But the, at the same time, you know, you don't want to embark on a strategy where the length of execution is too long. So I think the the strategy needs to be realistic. It needs to be focused. And the tenure needs to be reasonable so that people can see a start and they, they've got a, a strong view on the end date, you know, for that phase of what they're trying to achieve, you know. I mean, for me, things that have got durations beyond three years, you really need to think about, actually, what are we trying to do here, you know? It's just too long. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be another phase, but I think you just need to set the parameters and, and have a clarity of plan that is 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 realistic and you can action against it, you know. And similarly, you know, I think the point of validation and POC and so forth is an important one, you know, but I think I think the decisions need to be it needs to be business driven because often often an organization will get set off course because stakeholders within the group are pushing a particular agenda, you know, and there's no agenda that gets pushed more than a technology agenda. So I think we've all seen examples of people diving into a POC. And then you have to step back and say, well, wait a minute, we haven't actually finalized what the strategy is and you want to do a POC. That makes no sense at all. You know, so, but that needs to be part of the plan, the governance and that obje objectivity across the stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, to that point, this idea of effectively the right amount of time for a project. I mean, one of the things from the research was that ultimately at the mega mega fund end of the scale, you're talking about up to about seven years of, of time horizon that people are comfortable with versus, you know, one year at, at a kind of smaller sub one billion AUM level. Maybe, Jeff, just a, a, a kind of question on that. First of all, do you think that that's right? Ultimately, how are the smaller people, smaller organizations managing all of this when their time horizons are so short? And then just given your experience also, if you throw regulatory enforcement into this, how do people have the luxury of a seven-year or three-year time horizon in many cases? I think what you're seeing there in that one-year versus seven-year is a different definition of what a project is. And I think to Mark's point, the I'd probably even say shorter than three years, but if, you're, if you've got a strategy that involves tra transforming where a technology is a piece of it, you better have some instalments along the way for a range of reasons. One is to test that you're on course 
and that forecasting works because forecasting with transformation programs is the longer the period, the longer the likelihood that you can track away from the objective. You also insulate yourself against key person dependencies a bit. But the idea is, I think with anything longer than I would say, you know, a 12-month period, you want deliverables happening along the way and the strategic outcome, you want to be able to paint that outcome, but you want to be able to know that the instalments that you're making are taking you in that direction. And I think one of the real tricks for people that have got experience with transformation is taking on a, a series of things that look like tactical steps but are in fact building blocks towards a strategic outcome. I think the concept of a single strategic wacko, let's do it all in one go, I think that that really isn't a good experience for anyone. And I think the um, – so from a financial management, from a risk management, from a people – people are real and the number of here have said that uh, keeping the people engaged and, and uh, you know, dealing with the fact that they have careers that end and all that kind of stuff, all that is best dealt with by having – something that, that runs in that period. But I would say where you've got smaller firms saying one year, that's simply the time horizon over which they can make an, an investment decision with certainty. I think the larger firms can make an investment decision over a longer period of time. But I expect if you took some time series of that, that longer period of time is getting shorter. In every other industry that used to look at five and 10-year horizons, that's down to three or less and often 12 months as well. And I think the way that that will be resolved is to understand that I, I might have a a longer-term strategy or vision or whatever that thing's going to be called, but my projects are going to be instalments that have to deliver on that journey. Yeah, I think the word instalments is a great one because, I mean, it, it, there's so many linkages in your mind to exactly what you'd expect from an instalment. That's really what you're saying, isn't it? Is, is basically is a, yeah, is, is that quick return. Brilliant. Well, look, so to bring this all together then, I mean, we've gone through an enormous journey over the last few conversations. People listening to this are obviously vested interests. They've, they've invested the time in listening. So what are the kind of the top three things that, you know, from all of this that we're saying has, you know, key enablers, key steps that need to be taking right now, if you're in that kind of heavily spreadsheet-based environment, aware of all of these different pressures, struggling with the business case, and so on and so forth. Maybe, Christine, ladies first, if you're your top three steps for fixing the world. <laughs> I don't know if I have the top three steps. I think ultimately it's having the right people at the table because it always starts with the people. And then to both Jeff and Mark's points, coming up with what the right strategy is for you as a firm and then delivering on that, but delivering on it thoughtfully and in a way that you're gaining advantage along the way because you don't have the time for you know those long, longer term view of the world. So for me, it's always about the people, the process, and then the technology, and really looking at it from that perspective. Brilliant. Thank you. Mark, what's your take? I mean, Christine has got has nailed my them. top three. You know, I've, I've rebadged them, Christine, if you don't mind. I've said uh, right people, right plan, right execution. That's Ryan, a good rebadging. No, I can't. I mean, I, you know, I think we all understand that those are the three success factors. The one thing I will say is in all three of those factors to add levels of honesty, be really sort of clear about what's happening, because I think large organizations can get lost in a lot of noise in terms of all those, the right components, be truly honest with yourself, speak to the right people and accept the truth for what it is because it will considerably increase the success of your transformation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Jeff? Yeah, these are probably overlaps or maybe some sub points in some cases, but I, I think the, the big one that um, Christian started with was about thinking strategically. And, and in my mind, that means across the whole firm, not just elements of the firm that you're focused on today. And that includes the supply chain. The, the operating model includes the, the supply chain. The second thing I think is recognising where returns come from and where risk lives in the organisation. And, um, you know, one of the observations is, and, and you need to allocate, you know, focus and, and capital accordingly. So, Getting rid of what I call salary bias, where the highest paid people get to have what they want and nobody else does, that's that's not a good outcome. But, um, you know, if you look at uh, the asset allocation process that generates 70 or 80% of returns, it's probably the least well-funded part of the organisation, you know, compared to other pieces. So that alignment is important. And, and the other one that I think uh, has been talked about a fair bit is um, if you haven't got all the answers, that's okay. You know, if you're short on some competencies and and uh, or capital and focus or something, partner with organisations that specialise in that thing. And uh, if it's what they do as a core business, you've got a much better chance of them being someone who will partner with you and not be distracted by something else. And I think we're seeing that starting to happen where you look at the, the larger funds talking to boutiques and talking to fintechs and so on. They're looking to widen the places that they actually take in input from and that, that can only be a healthy thing. Yeah, brilliant. So thank you very much, all of you, for bringing that together. I mean, the the agreement is a good thing because it means that ultimately, that you know, there is a, a reasonably consistent path forward. But I think what's brilliant through this conversation is I think many of the pitfalls and risks we've talked about along the way have been have really helped to draw out everything from technical bias, salary bias. There's a lot of challenges that obviously that are going to pull people off course, undermine the projects, not least of all absence of honesty, I think really resonates. So the ability to have those front of mind and see them as obstacles as they come is is as, as useful as the positive kind of strategy, I think. So thank you very, very much for pulling all of that together. If anyone does want to refer back to the research that we've been talking about, it's available at thevalueexchange.co. But more importantly, please do reach out to the Milestone Group, to RBC, to CitySoft, to Adipro Advisory. If you have any questions and want to take this forward because obviously this is just the beginning of the conversation so thank you very much and have a good afternoon